Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Sakara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara life. We believe that we each have the power to create our dream life through our thoughts and the energy that we radiate into this world. As we so often discuss here at Sakara, true change, both physical and mental, starts with not just our food and how we nourish ourselves, but also our thoughts and their impact on our realities. Today's episode is an extra special one as we're sitting down with one of the most respected experts in this space and is someone that we have both admired greatly for years, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Dr. Dispenza is a New York Times bestselling author and researcher whose work primarily focuses on the role quantum physics, epigenetics, and neuroscience play in creating our reality. In the last 10 years, he's spearheaded extensive research with leading scientists to understand the effects that meditation and our thoughts have on the brain and body. His work truly bridges science and spirit, and today we are so, so excited to welcome him on to share his incredible wisdom on how each of us have the power to heal our bodies and minds through evolving our consciousness. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Joe Dispenza. Well, Dr. Joe Dispenza, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. I think, you know, when we started out this podcast and had our dream list of guests to have, you were at the top of our list. I think your work has been so monumental and influential on the work that we do at Sakara, and you're a voice in helping people understand the power of their thoughts and how what you think creates your reality. So such a pleasure to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. Uh, thank you, guys. I'm really happy to be with both of you. So we like to start off our podcast by asking you about your mission. So what do you feel like your personal mission is here on Earth? Wow, on Earth, huh? Yep. Well, I think the first mission is for me to work really diligently to be the living example of, of everything that I teach. I think that takes us out of the philosophical and theoretical realm of espousing some bit of knowledge without the practical experience. And, and for me personally, I'm a pragmatist, and I think this is a time in history where it's not enough to know. It's a time in history to know how. And we were talking before we got started about what the bleep and that movie back in uh, 2006 or so was about presenting knowledge and information to people to have them question the nature of reality. But the side effect of that was the conferences that were created all over the world and the panel discussions. I listened to the questions that people asked, and the most common question was, how do we do it? And I think it's a brilliant question because that steps us out of the bleachers and onto the playing field. And now we have to really begin to measure the effects of what we can do at cost. And, and so 
One of my missions, then, is certainly is to be the example. The next mission is really to demystify the process so that people have within their reach all the tools to begin to make measurable changes, not only in their health or in themselves, but ultimately be reflected in their lives. And the cool thing about it is we have such a great team of researchers, you know, uh, empirical scientists that have been uh, helping me demystify the process so that I can say without a doubt there's a formula that no different than dancing the salsa or cooking a really great meal or hitting a golf ball. If you practice the steps, it'll become one step. And instead of working on, for an example, changing your health, learning the formula on how to change your health. So and I think science is the contemporary language that demystifies that process. And if you combine a little quantum physics with a little neuroscience and a little neuroendocrinology and some psychoneuroimmunology and epigenetics, all those electromagnetism, they all point the finger at possibility. And when people begin to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, the how gets easier. And the third mission really is, is really to transform individuals in order to transform the world or transform a culture or, or having people see that there are possibilities out there that they just were unaware of. And the moment you become aware, once you know, you can't not know. And so fast forward from 2006 to the present day, and, and if you ask Joe Dispenza in 2006, would he be seeing the type of changes in people's health and in their lives as I would be seeing currently, I'd probably say, yeah, maybe once or twice. But when you see blind people seeing and deaf people hearing and people with strokes that have been paralyzed for 10 years, moving their limbs again, and stage four cancers that have metastasized into bones and into organs completely be reversed, you start wondering, you start scratching your head and you start realizing that there's a movement, there's a collective consciousness where people are less likely to have to put their health or their lives in the hands of an authority, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a priest, a rabbi, whether it's a doctor, a governor. <laughs> that was the old model to gain information. But because of technology, we have access to information. And, and people go to a doctor 50 years ago and they say, you need your uterus taken out. And everybody said, oh, okay, um, where do I sign? And if your gallbladder is bad, we'll take that out too. Oh, thank you. You know, that was just kind of like we signed off on responsibility. Now people get a diagnosis. And the beauty behind that is they say, wait a second, I'm not so sure I want to do this yet. Let me just take a moment and research some of the answers or solutions that sometimes are outside of convention that doctors don't really know about or they don't think work. And then the, the person presents, I'd like to try this. And the doctor says, I, I don't believe it or I don't think it works or that's, I don't know anything about it. And people say, time to find a new doctor. So there's this kind of taking our power back into our own personal destiny and evolution. And I think mm -hmm. if you can transform enough individuals with a new level of mind, that four minute mile of what's possible, it's in the field now and it's, and there's evidence around us. And we have such evidence in our scientific studies and such evidence in our testimonies that evidence has become the loudest voice. Yeah, and I have so, so many questions for you, but I'm pretty sure that our audience has seen your work and knows who you are. But just in case, could you just quickly, what do you call your work? Can you just explain <laughs> it in layman's terms, so to speak? Well, that's a really funny question because when I sit on a plane, and someone asked me what I do, I just try to say I'm an author and just try to leave it at that so I can <laughs> work a little bit. But um, it's really simple. I mean, there's just a couple simple principles that define my work. And one of the most foundational principles is that your personality creates your personal reality. That's it. 
And your personality is made up of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. So the present personality who's listening to this call has created the present personal reality called their life, which means if you want to create a new personal reality, a new life, you're going to have to change. You're going to have to change your personality. And we're going to have to start thinking about what we've been thinking about and change it. We have to become Mm -hmm. conscious of our unconscious habits and behaviors. And I think to modify them and then to look at emotions that keep us, you know, connected and anchored to the past and decide, does this emotion really belong in my future? And I think that most people try to create a new personal reality as the same personality and it doesn't work. So, so then getting close to the understanding of what it truly means to change, to really think differently, to really make better choices, to really demonstrate new behaviors, to begin to create new experiences and feel the emotions that are connected to those new experiences are not the same emotions that have to do with unworthiness or guilt or suffering or pain. And doing that enough times that we actually become somebody else. And when we truly reach that point, there should be evidence in our life as a result of our efforts. There are an outpicturing of our reality should appear differently than when we started. And, and it's not about the wealth or the health or the or the freedom or the relationship. It's about who we become, you know, in the process. In the process of overcoming self. And what I've learned in the last two years and becoming someone else, once you change, (laughs) truly change, it's hard to go back because the reflection of that just in the physical body, a person will say, well, where's the cancer? And they'll say, "Uh, it's in the old personality. I'm somebody else. They didn't visualize the tumor going away. They understood that if they were thinking, acting, and feeling differently, there should be a different gene expression. And the expression of genes is the expression of life. And and we have evidence to show that people can change their genes in four days. I mean, so now once you know, you can't not know. So you get enough people doing that. And it's just like an infection spreads amongst a community and creates disease. Wow. Health and wellness in a collective group of 1,500 people for one week becomes as infectious as disease. And that's when it's way bigger than me. That's when I just get out of the way and go, wow, this is human beings, like the divine aspect of ourselves when it's awakened, uh, can really shorten the distance between cause and effect. You know, say thoughts and things. Well, some people, it may take them 15 years of having that thought manifest as a thing because they're doing it by the principles that define us in three-dimensional reality. They're a piece of matter trying to affect matter. And the effect is it takes time and energy to do that. But if you create from a different place, from that invisible field of energy that unifies and connects everything physical, that quantum level, you can shorten the distance between cause and effect, between the thought and the experience, between the thought and the thing. And that's exciting to me because people are learning how to do that. Yeah, this part is really interesting to me. I mean, you just said so much in the beginning of this podcast. I'm like, we're actually going to end right here. Yeah, we could just wrap it up. That was so much. Like, I have goosebumps because just, I mean, I've been taking some notes here. And if you really absorb some of these points that you're talking about right now, it can be really powerful. Danielle and I used to always talk about if you want things to be different, then they can't stay the same. If you want to be different, like if you want things to change, you have to change. And it sounds really simple, but it's not. It's the hardest thing in the universe. It's the yeah. hardest thing. No. And you're, you're physically patterned to be thinking the thoughts that you're used to thinking. And so when I had, I had terrible cystic acne for over a decade of my life, 
I was reading your books. I was watching What the Bleep Do We Know. I was into the power of the mind. And I would stand in front of the mirror and try and smile at myself and think away my acne. But I, I couldn't figure out, like, what was the root thought that I was thinking that was manifesting the acne on my face? And you're talking about, like, thinking about the thoughts that we think about, becoming aware, shortening the distance between thoughts and physical. What, what would you have told me to do? How do, yeah. we, how do we do that? Well, um, well, that's a bottle of wine in a two-hour conversation, but, <laughs> but I, will, I will say this, that if, if we think 60 to 70,000 thoughts in one day, okay, and we do, and 90% of those thoughts are the same thoughts as the day before, and you believe that your thoughts have something to do with your destiny, <laughs> if your thoughts are the same, your life is going to stay the same because the same thoughts lead to the same choices. The same choices lead to the same behaviors. The same behaviors create the same experiences and the same experiences produce the very same feelings and emotions. And then those familiar feelings begin to influence our very same thoughts and our biology, our neurochemistry, our neurohormones, our gene expression. Everything stays the same because we're the same. So it turns out that by the time we're in our mid-30s, that 95% of who we are becomes a hardwired set of automatic programs in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we feel. Imagine, a person's going to try to think positively with the 5% of their conscious mind, but they have been practicing feeling unhappy for the last 30 years. So that thought happens in the brain, but it never gets to the body because you can say, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm healthy with the 5% of your conscious mind. And your body's saying, no, you're not. You're miserable. So that thought never makes it past the brainstem. So then thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And how you think and how you feel creates your state of being. So then in order for you to accept the thought that makes it past the brainstem and begins to influence your body. It would make sense then that you would have to change the emotional state of your body. That if a person begins to practice elevated emotions, heart-centered emotions, and they trade their fear or their anxiety or their frustration or their impatience for an elevated emotion like joy or gratitude, the body is so objective that it does not know the difference between a real-life experience that would be creating that emotion and the emotion that the person is creating by thought alone. The body's believing it's living in a new environment, a new circumstance, a new reality. Now, the person says, I'm healthy, and, and the person's feeling gratitude. When you receive something favorable, when you just receive something favorable, when something wonderful is happening to you or something wonderful just happened to you, you say, thank you. You feel gratitude. So its emotional signature means something has already happened or something is happening wonderfully to you. So if we can change not only our thought, we also have to change our feelings. And when we begin to practice changing our feelings and we get good at it, and we actually measure this on people, that in time then, their body starts believing they're living in a new reality. And if they can condition their body with a thought and a feeling, an image and an emotion, a stimulus and a response, that over time they begin to program their body subconsciously into the emotion of the future. And when you're feeling the emotions of your future, you no longer look for it. 
Why would you look for it if you feel like it already happened? And that's when the magic starts to happen. So you can't do it and say, where's my, is it gone? You can't do that. You got to be so into becoming that person and sustaining that state of being independent of any condition in your environment that would cause you to react emotionally and return back, you know, to the same Whitney, that you would have to stay in the emotions of your future and be able to sustain that state with your eyes open as well as your eyes closed. And if you can, then the law says that there should be some observable change in your body or in your life. And that's the work. So sometimes it's not just saying that. Sometimes we have to, we have to change our whole state of being, the way we think and the way we feel. And here's one of my objectives in this conversation, because I, I do not understand how there's people out there that could not believe this. And because to me, and in large part, thanks to a lot of your work, it feels like common sense. And, you know, I'm a science geek. I'm currently getting my master's in functional medicine, and I'm actually deep into the nervous system and the endocrine system. And you start to understand that they're one and the same. And so biologically speaking, we know that how our body feels impacts what our body does and vice versa. It's, you cannot argue that. It's in the textbooks. And so in your work, I'm sure you've come up against so many naysayers and so many people that just don't believe or feel like this is so out there. And I can imagine, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are very educated and into this world. So maybe not a lot of our listeners, but in the world out there, there's, there's so many people that think this is boo-boo and it's actually so deeply scientific. And so I guess that's not a question except where do you think the disbelief comes from? How can people not believe when we know it to be true? Well, I mean, times have changed, you know, quite a bit, Danielle. And, and 20 years ago was a, was a different story. But um, I, I realized somewhere along the line that I'm not interested in trying to convince anybody that this is true. I, I already know it's true. And mm-hmm. I think when people are ready to really realize that uh, when they get to a point where no treatment, no surgery, no chemotherapy, no drug, no diet, no yoga, no nothing changes their state until they change, then all of a sudden there's a level of listening that happens that never existed before because their chronic health condition requires a lifestyle change and making different choices. And the hardest part about change is not making the same choice as you did the day before. And the moment you make a different choice, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And that challenges the very fabric of our biology. So, so I realized somewhere along the line that I really no longer cared about the people who didn't want to listen to me because it's not their time, but the people who do that really are ready, then it's my job to be able to demystify it and make it practical. So the person who says, I don't believe it's true, that person really is saying, I don't believe it's true for me. That's what they're really saying. And I learned this in the last two years, because when people stand on the stage in our workshops and give their testimonial, about their condition completely being reversed. Many times they'll say, I was open to the concepts and the ideas that I read in the book. It made sense to me. And I believe that it worked, but I never believed that it could work for me. Now, this is 
a very defining moment because in order for us to change a belief or perception about ourselves and our lives, we have to make a decision with such firm intention that the amplitude of that decision carries a level of energy that causes the body to respond to the mind. That the choice that we make in that moment becomes a moment in time we'll never forget where we say, I remember the moment I made up my mind to change. It became a long-term memory. So that moment, the person says, I'm going all in. I'm not missing a day of meditation for any excuse. I don't care how bad I feel, how tired I am, what went on yesterday, that I don't have enough time. Those constraints that so many people excuse themselves for and shrink back into mediocrity and suffer in their own quiet desperation, the moment they say, I believe I want to see if this could work for me. That means that's the moment if they're believing in that possibility for the first time, that means they have to believe in themselves. And when they believe in themselves, that means they have to believe in that possibility. So I think everybody has their moment, you know, has their wake-up call. My message is why wait for the disease? Why wait for the crisis? Why wait for the breakdown? Why wait for the breakup? Why wait for the loss, the trauma to finally change? I mean, We can learn and change in a state of pain and suffering. And my message is, why don't we just change in a state of joy and inspiration? And and people sometimes have to be hit the hardest. All those programs that they've memorized can no longer say to them, keep the facade going because they they don't feel like themselves any longer. And nothing is making that feeling go away. No relationship, no text, no social media post, no no nothing is making that feeling go away. This is a profound moment for people to really begin to say, this is my moment to change. And, and we can do that without reaching that point and we could actually change our destiny because of it. So I, I realized early on that the people that don't like the message or don't like me, they're never going to like the message anyway or until they're ready, and that's fine. But the people who do, that's the people who I want to work with. And what's happening more and more is there's just kind of this beautiful shift going from one to the other. You know, more people are starting to to believe in, in it. And, and I can tell you because a long time ago when we were being invited to universities and academic institutions, they were there to, to sabotage us, to ambush us. And now I'm having conversations with very, very sophisticated scientists that cannot believe the data that they're gathering from the blood of advanced meditators and novice meditators in a week of immersing ourselves into the experience. So all I have to do is give people the proper information and have them reason it. If they can truly reason it, they sometimes have the most profound experiences. And the people who whose wife dragged them to the event or their best friend dragged them to the event or some kid comes because their parents are going. Those people who have no experience of the inner work of transformation. Some of those people have the most profound experiences because they just say, tell me what to do. They don't expect anything and they actually do exactly what they're told to do. And they have the most profound experiences. They have the most profound changes in their brain and their gene expression. They get it. So so I just think it's a great time where people are just, there's an awakening going on. And, and I think it's because of people that are really already setting the trend or, or, or carving a path for people. And now for a quick break. Today, we are thrilled to tell you a bit about our newest launch, the Metabolism Superbar. 
As most of you know, metabolism is a very important topic for us here at Sakara, as it plays a crucial role in our overall health of our bodies. So many factors impact our metabolism, like our nutrition, sleep, stress, hydration, and much more. We created the Metabolism Super Bar to optimize your metabolic function, stabilize blood sugar, and regulate cortisol levels, all in one delicious bar. Each bar is packed with 10 grams of plant protein, 11 grams of plant fiber, plus clinically backed ingredients to help turn up thermogenesis and kick your body into burn mode. It's personally my favorite tasting bar as well. It has a chocolate fudgy taste to it, and I can't wait for you all to try it. It's so delicious. For a limited time, we're offering our listeners $15 off their first purchase with code PODCAST15 at checkout. So go over and get your pack of bars now before they sell out. And now back to the episode. Yeah, and I also think it's been your work in particular is so important because I think you you do bridge the science and the spirit so well in a way that I don't often come across in the scientific world where it's usually in one camp, either it's scientific or it's over here and it's spiritual. And so I'd love to hear from you. I've heard you talk about changing our minds and that that's that's really at the epicenter of what it means to change ourselves fundamentally. So how do we change our minds? Well, you guys ask good questions. So that is the permanent change of the mind is something that really is neurological and biological. So there's a principle in neuroscience that says that nerve cells that fire together wire together. If you keep thinking the same way, making the same choices, feeling the same feelings, creating the same experiences, doing the same things, the firing and wiring of those neurocircuitries begins to create more permanent long-term relationships in the neurons that are connecting to one another. And once they become hardwired, they become more automatic. So automatic then means more subconscious or they actually become more unconscious. In other words, those thoughts slip by our awareness unnoticed by us because we're so distracted by our environment most of the times. So then this concept in neuroscience called metacognition and what it means is, is because we got this big frontal lobe up here, we can observe our own thoughts. We can pay attention to how we speak, how we act. We can notice how we're feeling. And by becoming conscious of those unconscious states of mind and body means we're no longer unconsciously in the program. The moment you're conscious, you're not the program. You're something separate from it. So disentangling people from their own programs takes an energy, a level of energy, and a level of awareness that's greater than the energy and awareness that keeps them the same way. And so many people, when they come up against this barrier of their own belief, and it could even be emotionally, that's the moment that they don't believe that there's something on the other side. They'd rather suffer or be unhappy than take a chance and possibility. So if you give people the process of how that happens. And after so many years of looking at brain scans and so many years of looking at uh, HRV measurements, heart rate variability measurements, and looking at brains in real time in meditation, pre and post scans, uh, interviewing a lot of people, seeing a person hit a transcendental moment and the amount of energy in their brain go off the scale. And we've come to an understanding that that is really quite simple, that 
The brain functions better when it's coherent. And you can teach a person how to make their brain work better. And I can tell you, you can do it in four days. And once your brain becomes more integrated, then you are more focused. You can have a clearer intention. By the same means, intention is only one element in the creative process. The other element, as we discussed, is an elevated emotion. And being able to sustain an emotional state that's elevated and keeping that energy in your heart takes a will that's greater than the programs that causes you to feel unhappy or, or suffering. So this is not something you scale in one leap across a chasm. You have to keep practicing. So when a person's sitting in a meditation and their body starts getting aroused and they start getting frustrated, start getting impatient, they start getting angry. And they're just sitting there. Now, most people lift their blindfolds up or open their eyes or turn the lights on in the room or quit and say, or lay down and say, today wasn't my day. I couldn't meditate. That's what most people do. But the truth is that they think that they don't think they can control that emotion. So the body is an animal. It's the servant. If you tell the body to settle down and you relax it and you lower the volume to that emotion, that's the moment you're telling the body it's no longer the mind, that you're the mind. Now, that tends to be a victory. That's a victory. And if you get up and, you know, every day and you start racing through your day and check your cell phone and make your calls and talk to people, make your coffee, do all your things. And that's another automatic program. And you're sitting in a meditation. You notice your body wants to get up and check your social media, wants to check your phone, wants to get up and eat something, make a cup of coffee. And you notice your body's on autopilot and you take your body and you settle it back down into the present moment. You're executing a will again, greater than the program. And that's a victory as well. And it starts saying, how long is this going to go? I don't know if I can go much more. I'm going to die in this meditation. I hate Dr. Joe. You know, whatever it is that goes on for the person. And that's when people give up because they don't believe there's anything on the other side of that. Turns out, if you keep settling the brain and body back into the present moment, just like training an animal, it's going to stay. And when it does, there's an incredible liberation of energy out of the body. The body's releasing energy, emotions, information. The brain is settling down out of the states of stress and survival that causes it to be disintegrated in the process. So the act of overcoming, overcoming, overcoming is what actually causes us to become someone else. And, and when we run our week-long events, the first two days is the challenge because it's really when people really have to sit with themselves and they have to watch their thoughts. And sooner or later, the word meditation means to become familiar with. That's what it means. So when you become so familiar with your unconscious thoughts, your automatic habits and behaviors, and your knee-jerk emotional responses, you are so familiar with them that you would never go unconscious to them in your waking day. That's when you're mastering the old self. But by the same means, if you said, if it means to become familiar with, then you would say, what thoughts do I want to fire and wire in my brain? And with intention and attention, you keep firing that thought, understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it. You're installing hardware. Keep firing and wiring and become a software program and be the new voice in your head that says, Danielle, you can do anything. If you sat down and you say, how am I going to be with my relationship, with my friends? How am I going to be in traffic? How am I going to be when I'm in this meeting? And you closed your eyes and you rehearsed who you were going to be in that meeting. The research on mental rehearsal says 
that you can literally close your eyes and your brain gets so present that it's believing it's living that experience. So now the brain is no longer a record of the past. You're installing new circuitry in the future. The brain looks like you've already done it. You're priming the brain. If you keep doing it over and over again, the hardware becomes a software program and you start acting like a happy person. Well, there's no magic there. You installed the circuitry. You rehearsed it. And then if you said, okay, I'm not going to wait for my new relationship to feel love, my, my wealth to feel abundance, my healing to feel gratitude. That would be waiting for my environment to change, to take away my emptiness or my lack. If I were to say, can I teach my body emotionally what my future will feel like before it happens? And I want to remember this emotion. I want to open my heart and feel the gratitude of it, that it's already happened. Your body is so objective as the unconscious mind. It's believing it's living in that future. So then if you keep doing this over and over again, firing and wiring the thoughts, rehearsing your behaviors, and emotionally conditioning your body, you keep doing it, it begins to become familiar to you. So the biological model for change is unlearning and relearning. It's breaking the habit of the old self and reinventing a new self. It's pruning synaptic connections and sprouting new connections. It's unfiring and unwiring and then refiring and rewiring. It's deprogramming and reprogramming. It's losing your mind, literally, and creating a new one. Unmemorizing emotions that are stored in the body and then making the choice by volition to recondition the body to a new mind and to a new emotion. And the funny thing about this is that when people really start to do this properly, they want less. <laughs> they need less. They don't care what you think about them. They don't care what they look like to you. They're just happy and comfortable with themselves. They feel so whole that they, they really have much less needs. And I, I think that's a, a great place to create from instead of in separation and lack. So the process of change then is an ongoing process because at the end of your day, you should always ask yourself, how did I do today? When did I fall from grace? When did I emotionally react? When did I judge again? When did I start getting envious? When was I insecure? When did I believe in that thought? If I have another opportunity tomorrow, another lifetime, that thought will never slip by my awareness ever again. That's evolution. And we keep doing this over and over again. You become the very person you want to become. And your reality starts to shift around you. Uh, people start noticing that you're different because people... People fill in reality based on their memory. They don't, they don't see things how they are. They, they see things how they are. So the moment you show up in your place of work or in your relationships or with your friends and they notice you are different in some way, my memory of you isn't matching who you are in front of me. That's the feedback to let you know that you're stepping into a new life. Don't stop. No, I'm just, <laughs> so good. Like we could, I could hear you talk about that for forever. And it's, it's so moving. Wait, it looks like you had a question. No, I was just having some realizations I, on my own of like this <laughs> yeah. interaction this morning with this woman. She asked at the coffee shop, she asked if she could hold my baby. I had to run because I needed to be on a call in 10 minutes. And I said, oh, we're leaving. And she said, no, it's because you don't want me to hold your baby and tried to get into this altercation with me. And, and it was, her personal reality manifesting all the way around of just how she thought about her life happening. And I don't know. So I was just having this replay in my mind and also thinking to myself, how would I have reacted differently in that moment instead of feeling my emotions start to rush attacked. through my body? Yeah, being attacked in this way. 
but starting to become aware of in these moments and choose my thoughts and choose my feelings. Well, here's the truth behind this. I mean, we all react. I react. Everybody reacts. But the real question is, how long are you going to react? That's the real question. And if we don't know how to shorten our emotional responses to the conditions or circumstances that challenge us and change back to the emotional state that connects us to our future, you know, that future that you're dreaming, then we disconnect from the energy of the future. We're back to the energy of the past. Don't expect anything to change in your life. So the fact that you reacted is incidental because it's a shock, you know, when somebody kind of does that. But the real question is, can I make my way back to my heart and just bless that person and say, oh, my God, I hope one day that she really realizes that nobody feels that way about about her. her. Yeah. Yeah. But I really did need to get on a phone call. (laughs) Yeah, I had to go. And also, I don't know about a stranger holding my baby, and that's okay, too. Yeah, we're in a pandemic, Um, (laughs) and they're a stranger. I know I was going to ask Dr. Joe if he could take us back a little bit. And I know that you have a strong personal story of how all of this has impacted your own life and your own health. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that and um, share your personal story with us. Sure. I mean, um, I was in a triathlon in Palm Springs in, uh, in the mid eighties and I was in a cycling portion of the race and there were two bikers that were on the corner and I was going pretty fast and I was going to pass these two bikers and there was a police officer on the corner and he was pointing at me to make the turn like this. He was telling me to turn, but he had his back to the oncoming traffic. So as I passed these two bikers, a truck was driving on the, on the road and, and hit me from behind and uh, dragged me down the, the road there a little bit. And I wound up breaking uh, six vertebrae in my spine and, and had some bone fragments on my spinal cord. And, and the neural arch of one of the vertebrae had broken like a pretzel and was compressing against the cord. So so the typical procedure for something like this is a radical surgery called the Harrington Rod Surgery. And I had gotten four opinions from four surgeons at the time. And they all told me that the solution really was just the, the surgery and that I would probably never walk again. So I figured, well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. And is it possible that my mind could affect my body? And um, I just said, you know, I'm not going to let any thought slip by my awareness that I don't want to experience, which sounds easy, except when you're in crisis, you're always thinking the worst thing. And then I said, I'm, there's got to be an intelligence that lives within me that's giving me life that maybe I can make enough time to make contact with it and give it a plan, a, a template, some, some format, some instructions. And once I'm clear and happy with whatever I'm creating and totally present with it, I'll surrender it, uh, this creation to a greater mind because I, I can't do the healing. It's something else bigger than me has to do it. I went through six weeks that were probably the worst six weeks of my life because I couldn't get my mind to do what I wanted it to do. I just would start off, and then next thing I know, I would be thinking about living in a wheelchair the rest of my life, or should I sell my practice, should I sell my home? And I'd start all over. And I was frustrated and impatient and uh, uh, really lost for six weeks, but I kept with it. And after a period of time, it started getting easier. And when it started getting easier, I noticed that I started feeling better. And I started thinking maybe what I was doing had an effect on it. And I started doing it with more passion and more sincerity. And then next thing you know, I was back on my feet and uh, back to my life in, in 10 weeks, 10 and a half weeks. And and I just made a deal with myself that if I was ever able to walk again, I'd spend the rest of my life 
studying the mind-body connection and mind over matter. And pretty much I've been doing that ever since. I think a lot of people would say like, this is God, right? And, and God stepped into your life. And I mean, you're talking about people who are blind being able to see, who are deaf being able to hear, all of these incredible miracles happening. I, I don't know. I, I just want to ask, like, what are your thoughts on God? And I know Danielle has some questions around this too. Yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. I was going to ask why after all of this research you've done and the the lives you've watched transform from this work, yours among them, why do you believe we're here? Oh my gosh, I think there's so much more of life to discover. I mean, there's the known self. We know everything about our reality in this three-dimensional world and Uh, everything physical and material, but I think that there is an unknown aspect of ourselves that we've forgotten about. And the question is, can we evolve our experiences and shorten the distance between cause and effect, between the thought and the thing, between the thought and the experience? And, and, And I think that when we begin to do it properly and we start bringing into the equation, not just everything material, but the immaterial, which is according to your definition of spirituality, to me, it's energy. So there's matter and there's energy, or there's particle and there's wave, and, and you can't have one without the other. And so it turns out that when you study matter, you think that matter is emitting a field when you look at the, the energy around matter, but it's actually the opposite. It's the field that's actually creating matter. So if you can influence changes in the field, then you should see changes in matter, right? So as an example, then, we can always progress our understanding of our execution of how we can affect the nature of the three-dimensional world. In other words, a person who does a specific meditation in our work where they bless their energy centers and they understand that it's energy that's informing matter, and they notice that, I don't know, I'll make up a disease, uh, they notice that their um, rectal cancer goes away or their impotence goes away, or their heart palpitations go, or their thyroid condition disappears, or tumor disappears. Well, the next question is, well, God, I've healed myself. Is it possible then to heal another person? Well, what piece of knowledge and information do I have to study to broaden the model of being able to execute at a greater level? So then we have, we teach people how to do that. And I have witnessed people, there's the tumor and there it's gone. And I know that sounds pretty crazy. And to me, if I was listening to this show, they'd probably think I was crazy. And I'm a very, I'm a, I have a healthy sense of skepticism. So when you see that outcome, then the next question is, okay, that person who healed another person, can I heal a person on the other side of the world? And do I have to be physically present? What piece of quantum physics or science that would help me to understand that I'm not separate? That if I can connect to this realm, that everything is a thought away, and can I practice hitting a coordinate? Now, we have people that are doing that to such a great degree that we've created an official group of healers. They show up every day to do this work. They show up every, and they healed, have healed so many people, so much so that we're studying them biologically because these are profound effects. So now, the effect that they get from seeing a mother tell the story about her daughter who was disengaged because of a birth defect, who never ever paid any attention to her brothers or all of a sudden smiling at her brothers and trying to communicate after one healing. And you look at everybody that's in the healing and we're all in tears that there's that experience has created such a greater level of love or wholeness that it's about. And, and I think that there's a divine spark 
of that energy that lives in every single person, independent of their age, their color of their skin, their race, their culture, their sexual preference, their food, whatever it is, that everybody gets the opportunity to create reality exactly how we want. And and that's what makes it so beautiful. So if we decide to bring in the divine element and we start to co-create with energy in the field, the more we experience the outcomes of what we do, the more love we feel for life, the less we need things. And then all of a sudden, no longer becomes about us. It becomes about how we can serve, how we can make a difference, how we can heal, uh, how we can inform, you know, how we can change a, the world in some way. So the word God, I very rarely use, but in my definition, there is the unified field or single point, zero point field or singularity or source or pure love or universal mind. That realm of oneness is no separation. We've actually measured what happens to a person when they surrender so much that they run into it. There's an arousal in the nervous system that takes place. And normally the arousal, when there's an arousal in the nervous system, is pretty much three emotions. A pain, fear, and anger or aggression. That's what creates an arousal. And that's a sympathetic response. That's the fight or flight nervous system. But this arousal is coming from within. And when their consciousness merges with the consciousness of this field, the arousal is ecstasy. The arousal is bliss. We've seen this on so many brain scans. And we now know latent systems in the brain are activated when this person is feeling this, such a familiar, unfamiliar feeling that is so divine. They realize it's not coming from the wardrobe or the sports car or the football game or the TV show. <laughs> it's coming from within them. And they've, they've never felt anything like that before. They're less likely to look out there for it any longer. They start looking inside and it's always been within us. And, and we have great evidence to show that this eclipse, this union of our consciousness as we descended from source, from singularity, from oneness, all the way down into density, fooled by our senses into this concept called separation. It's no different than wearing a virtual reality headset. All of a sudden you start believing that's the real world, but who are you when you take the headset off? And in order to create from the field instead of from matter, you gotta take all of your attention off everything physical, known and material. And that act of getting beyond ourselves and surrendering any aspect of our limited self to join this, this greater mind, this unlimited self, we see that there's a process in place that when a person hits that moment and they have their own moment of ecstasy, when they have their own moment of bliss, when they touch the divine in some way, they always know that it's always been within them and it's always been there. They just have been unaware of it. So in the work that we do, we train people to practice this and keep surrendering until they run into something great. And when they do, more and more people are having this moment. They realize that divine has always been within them. We've separated from source to such a degree. It's all the way down into separation here that every single spark of the divine has the free will to answer the question, is there more to reality? Is there more than oneness? And gosh darn it, it's a really beautiful thing to see when people have this moment. Their heart opens in ways that they've never expected. Their mind expands in ways that they had never known. They touch the unknown part of themselves. And I think the love affair begins uh, with the divine in that moment. So I think there's one God, but in that God, there are many. Mm. 
That is so beautiful. I want to ask, it's hard to go after that question and it was such a beautiful answer. Where do we go from there, Joe? Um, I, I love that you are on the research side as well because for those of us, who I think is almost everyone, you know, like to believe with their eyes or at least helps, do you approach the research with, here's what I already know and let's go prove it? Or has there been anything in the research that's blown your mind that has like taken you farther than the work outside of the research? Well, I don't know if we have enough time for this, but I will tell you that we have the scientists that are very, very well-published researchers and physicians that that have been studying us in the last, since not this February, but the February before. We took the blood of advanced meditators and we subjected them to cancer cells. And cancer cells are almost immortal in the sense that the mitochondria and the cells, the energy centers of the cells, they produce an enormous amount of energy in cancer cells. And when we subjected the cancer cell to the blood of advanced meditators, uh, the energy went down in the mitochondria by over 70%, took the energy out of cancer cells. We took the blood of advanced meditators. These are people that meditate every day in, in our work. And we subjected the blood to neurons that had the amyloid protein from Alzheimer's. And it downregulated over 20 genes for Alzheimer's in a matter of moments. And so we see that people who that are novice meditators that just started our work and they come to a week-long event and we draw their blood before and we do brain scans on them before. And then we measure the group, the 1,500 people. Usually about 70% of these people really have never been to our events. And so I can tell you that in one week's time, that people go all in, that the amount of biological changes that take place in, in one week for people from gene expression to factors of immunity to exosomes. We measure thousands and thousands of different microscopic elements, and we create what's called a volcano map. And novice meditators that enter our work after a week have some of the most profound biological changes in one week. And, And we also have brain scans that produce so much energy and so much order that the research says that the probability of the brain doing that is mathematically impossible. And if it was to occur, it would only last for a millisecond and it would be a random event. And we have people sustaining the state for 15 minutes at a time and the energy in their brain just keeps going higher and higher. So we're looking under the hood of the machine, you know, under the car. And when you see a group of scientists that run back to the lab and see the results and then retest it because they cannot believe it over and over again. I just talked to our senior research analyst on Saturday and he said, I got to tell you, I just, I keep running the blood. I can't believe what I'm seeing. I, I've never seen anything like this before. Now, the cool thing about it is you don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be a nun. You don't have to be a minister. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to have 40 years of meditate. None of that. Just learn the formula and do it with the same amount of passion that you've learned anything, and then be curious to see if you can produce some type of outcome and change. And so we're running an event in Denver in July here, and one of the cool things is we're bringing our whole research team and we're doing, I was just on a research call before 
this call and we're studying everything. We're, we're, we're drawing blood, we're doing brain scans, we're doing HRV measurements, we're, we're doing gene expression exosomes, we're measuring thousands of biological factors and, and we're randomly selecting the people to see what kind of outcomes we're creating. Well, as Danielle said, we could talk to you on this topic forever, all day. I still have so many questions in my mind, but unfortunately, yeah, we'll have to do a part two with you. That was so informative, but we like to end our podcast as we are unfortunately out of time, but we love to end our podcast with what we call light work. And this is a practice or an exercise, homework of sorts, um, but light work to help our listeners shine their light a little brighter in order to maybe create that change like you're talking about in order to get closer to becoming the self that they want to become. Um, So would love for you to share a light work with our listeners today. Sure. I mean, simple one. I do this every day. What is the greatest example, greatest expression, greatest ideal of myself that I can present to the world today? Write down two thoughts that preoccupy your mind every day that you no longer want to think. Become aware of how you speak. Two things, the way you speak or act. You complain, do you blame, do you make excuses, do you judge people, do you have a short temper? Look at certain emotions that that you feel every day that you keep feeling every day that keeps you not seeing a future. And Close your eyes and memorize those thoughts, behaviors, and emotions and become so conscious of them that in your waking day, they don't slip by unchecked by you or unnoticed by you. That is the greatest service you could do to your body. And then before you get up, think about how you do want to think and repeat it enough times until you can feel it. Decide how you're going to behave in situations where you don't really feel like you want to be in that situation. And is there a better way to be with your coworkers? And practice that when your mind rehearsing how you're going to be. And then say to yourself, God, how would I feel if I had a great day today? What would be the feeling of that experience? And bring that feeling up before it happens and memorize the feeling and check in with your day to make sure that that feeling is still there. If it's not, don't say you failed. Just say you disconnected from your future. Take a moment and get back into that feeling. And that feeling will be the engine that drives certain thoughts and certain behaviors. If you keep practicing this, I guarantee you there should be synchronicities, coincidences, opportunities, serendipities that begin to happen in your life because no one changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. And and that's the experiment here. That's the experiment. So good. Thank you so much. I we're, I know I speak for Whitney as well, but we're just so grateful for you and the work that you're doing and the work you've been doing a long time before it was uh, easy as easy as it is now to talk about. So thank you for being on the frontier of all of this. No, thank you guys for spreading the message and the work that you do as well. It's just such an exciting time to be alive. Indeed it is. But, you know, you talk about, we didn't get to get into this too much, but, you know, I, I love how you talk about you can change through, you know, that the, the energetic realm or the physical realm and the physicals. You can, it's just a lot, it takes a lot longer, it's a lot harder, et cetera. But I love the idea where, you know, why not do both at the same time? And I think what Whitney and I found was food was really a catalyst for us to just get our minds back and not have any of the junk in the way 
but to really nourish our bodies so that at least as we're trying to work on our reactive natures and the things that we want to work on in ourselves, that the, the sluggishness or the lack of um, nourishment wasn't getting in the way of that work. Yes, I mean, that's the game. I mean, there's three types of stress, physical, chemical, and emotional. And physical stress is trauma, injuries, accidents. Chemical stress is viruses, bacteria, blood sugar levels, hormones and food, toxins. And then you have emotional stress, parenting, traffic jams, internet connections. And if you have three types of stress, physical, chemical, and emotional, then you have three types of balance, physical, mm-hmm. chemical, and emotional. In all the years that uh, I studied all of this, I realized that if you can get two out of those three in order, the third one always comes around. Get somebody more mm-hmm. chemically balanced with their diet, get some more physically balanced with yoga and exercise, they become more emotionally balanced. Get them more emotionally balanced, more chemically balanced, and more physically balanced. And so it's a combination, I think, of all three. So good. Thank you so much. Right. So, so great. We appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thank you guys so, so much for everything. I'd say after this conversation, I just feel more aligned than ever on our mission here at Sakara, which is to really put people in the driver's seat of their own health in order to transform their lives and live their Sakara life. And I think when we say give you the tools, it's these types of things. It's the emotional, spiritual tools. It's also, you know, what he calls the chemical tools. So food, nourishment, et cetera, so that you can transform your own life. Like we're not transforming your life. You're transforming your life and we're trying to make it that much easier. And then Also, I think this conversation reminded me the importance of reminding others what it means to live your Saqqara life, that it is taking a moment to stop and say, wait, what do I want my life to look like? And, you know, I know what a lot of times (laughs) we come up against our brilliant marketing team who's saying, well, people talk about how much they love Saqqara because it's so convenient. And it's like, yeah, that's, a great part of living, of, you know, ordering our product and living this car life, but it's not the thing. Right. It's not, it's not why we're here. Or being um, a vegan is not living the Sakara life, That that's, that's yeah. not what this is about, but it's yeah. why do we choose to nourish our body with plants? Why do we choose to add minerals to our water to nourish our bodies? It's not just to take it so that we have a little bit more energy throughout the day. Or we don't have to worry about lunch. Right. Okay. What's that next step beyond that? It's And maybe a thousand steps. Right. Well, even just the next step is, okay, well, I have more energy. I feel better in my body so that I can show up better at work because ultimately my dream is I want to have an impact on the world. I want to feel like my day has meaning. I want to show up as my best for my family, my relationships. I want to feel fulfilled. And I know that that starts with what I put into my body on a daily basis. Yeah, I guess it just reminded me that, you know, as part of our mission, our job is to make sure you're taking the time to think about your dream life. And that maybe we need to do a better job of making sure that's happening. Mm. That when you click order, our job is just begun. And 
that you really, really taking the time to think about that. It's like what he said, it's part of the practice, right? It's part of the meditation and it's going to feel sticky and icky and weird. And you're like, wait, no, I don't deserve that. That's weird or whatever it is that you want. But it's, that's how you start. And you created a new neural connection for a moment. And then tomorrow you're going to come back to it. And the whole point of where we come in is to help you get out of your own way mm-hmm. so that choosing your lunch and choosing how you're, what supplements to take or whatever it is, isn't an issue. It's just like, here it is. It's easy. You're nourished. Now let's get to the, like the good stuff. Let's get to the stuff that is like really gonna, you're going to notice a huge difference in who you are and how you show up. Yeah. And I think that what we offer is also a form of self-care, nourishing yourself, saying, I am worthy of nourishment. I am worthy of self-care. That is one place where you can practice that thought pattern, and then it can carry over into other parts of your life. And maybe it's difficult for you to eat a bowl of greens or eat some beets because you hate beets. Um, But that's one place where you can practice being different than how you've always been and take that risk and say, I am open to trying new things like eating leafy greens and eating some beets even if it's hard. And then hopefully you go out into the world and say, okay, I'm going to have this conversation now, even though it's hard. It sounds silly, but any little place where you can have that connection like that and make those small choices, it's a win. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com. Or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Mm-hmm.